if all I have is, you know, a bunch of <laughs> moral commands and uh, Aesop's fables, and at the end of it all, there's a surprise Jesus, then I'm really not understanding how the Old Testament is put together. I at times have had people say, you know, I just don't believe what you teach about Jesus being in every verse of the Old Testament. And I'm saying, great, because I don't teach that. <laughs> and I don't know any wise scholar who actually does. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Brian Chapel. Brian is the former president of Covenant Theological Seminary and currently serves as senior pastor of Grace Presbyterian Church in Peoria, Illinois. He's the host of the radio program Unlimited Grace, the author of numerous books, and the general editor of the ESV Gospel Transformation Study Bible. In our conversation today, Brian and I discuss what it means and doesn't mean to read the Old Testament through a Christ-centered lens, while also respecting the original meaning of the biblical text. He explains how the Old Testament really does point forward to the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners through Israel's Messiah. Let's get started. Brian, thank you so much for joining us on the Crossway Podcast today. You're welcome, Matt. Good to be with you. A lot of our listeners are pastors, uh, a lot of people involved in ministry in some way, maybe they've been to seminary, maybe they're just avid Bible studiers uh, on their own. And one of the things that I think we often struggle with is knowing how to read the Old Testament. Why do you think it is that it's such a challenging thing for us to kind of figure out? Well, I'm sure, I'm sure some of it is that we tend to read very atomistically. We see a command, you shall not steal. And we say, well, what should I say about that? Well, I should tell people not to steal. And since I've got the Bible verse that backs me up, what could be wrong with that? Or I, uh, I look at some uh, historical account and I say, uh, you know, Samson, when he had long hair, he was strong. When he had short hair, he was weak. Therefore, you should have well, no, that doesn't quite work. What, what, what am I supposed to say out of Samson? And we, we end up either reading just, as I said, a, a specific command or a moral example, and we try to come up with some sort of application. And our difficulty is we're forgetting the big picture. And uh, I think all of us, when we were learning to read the Bible, somebody said to us at some point, you know, context is part of the text. Uh, the reason that every heretic has his verse is he takes it out of context. Mm -hmm. And what we are doing, I think, when we're reading the Bible properly, particularly the Old Testament, is we're remembering the context. And there is a redemptive context. God made everything good. That was at creation. Then everything went bad at the fall. And after the fall, God says, I'm going to correct this. I'm going to make it right. And he says, actually, in that Genesis 3.15, that, that first gospel that he actually speaks to Satan, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And here's what's going to happen. You're, you're going to strike his heel. You're going to injure him, but he's going to crush you. And that, that crushing of Satan is not just in a one-time act. What God does when he says, I'm going to put enmity, this, this ongoing struggle, this antagonism between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, is the unfolding plan of redemption as God is revealing to us and to the world and to his people the message that they are not their redeemer, that God must provide a way out of the human predicament. 
And the way that we're reading the, the Old Testament as well as the New is by asking the question, how is God revealing his way out of this fallen condition that we live in? Yeah, so it seems like people who maybe are sometimes skeptical of a Christ-centered reading of the Old Testament, they'll often say, hey, you're, you're ignoring the historical context, you're ignoring the, the biblical context of that passage, but you're kind of saying that there's an even bigger context uh, when you look at all of Scripture that should inform how we approach even individual texts. Is that right? I'm, I'm saying exactly that, that there, there is a context always to be perceived. And actually, good, good people who are expounding the scriptures, they have, a, they have a right concern to say we can't just impose something on the text that's not there. I, I, I actually want to strongly agree with that. Um, and so there are often people who say you're just imposing the New Testament on the Old Testament to give it a Christ-centered reading. And I always want to say... Um, yeah, I recognize that would actually be a mistake, and it's not, it's not what I am suggesting, and I think when any good Bible reader suggests, but rather we're saying that, that there is a redemptive message that God is unfolding that culminates in the work of Christ, a mistake that I think uh, can happen when people try to do what's known, I think, wrongly as a Christ-centered reading, is they try to make Jesus magically appear in every Old Testament passage. And I don't know how you do that, you know, that you, what uh, Sidney Grodanus used to call leapfrogging to Golgotha. You take some reference in the Old Testament, you know, Moses met the daughters of Jethro at the well of Jacob. And Moses met women at a well, women at a well. And, oh, that's about Jesus meeting a woman at the well. And you're saying, no, <laughs> that's, not mm. what, that's not what we're doing. We're not taking kind of wordplay and trying to turn it in. We're saying, what is God revealing about his gracious nature when a murderer is uh, escaping to the desert and God provides for him what he cannot provide for himself, water in the desert, and by that a way to a, a life for a time until God delivers his people with that same person. And what we're discovering is God providing for people who cannot provide for themselves. That's, that's a message that's going to take many dimensions until it comes to fulfillment in Christ. Christocentrality, rightly interpreted, is, is not trying to make Jesus appear where he is not. It's displaying God's gracious nature that comes to fulfillment in Christ. So we're putting, as it were, the, the pieces of the biblical message in their proper order and proportion and point until we actually see what they are pointing to, which is the message of Christ. So on that front, would you say it's wrong to preach an Old Testament passage without connecting it in some way to Christ? What people will struggle with is they're saying, do you have to mention Jesus in every Old Testament passage? And, and my, my usual response, I'll, I'll go into it a little bit here, is to say, I'm actually not saying that, that you, you have to mention Jesus in every Old Testament passage. But I'd go on to say, you have to show the relationship of that passage to God's redemptive message. He is not saying, you just be a good person and you'll be okay with God. That, that is not the message in any place. God is instead revealing he must provide the way of escape from our human fallen condition. Now, having said that, if you know that the human person is not the one who is rescuing themselves, then why would we not say your human limitations, 
which God is revealing in this passage, where he is showing his gracious nature in the face of human limitation, why would we not say that finds its fullest expression in where the Bible itself is going in the ultimate ministry of Christ? But I'm not trying to say this passage means Jesus. That's, that's, that's where you get some sort of allegorical imposition. And that, that's certainly not what I'm suggesting. And uh, I know that there are many people who will just almost reflexively, because they're wanting to protect, rightly protect the message of Scripture, saying, I, you know, I don't want to preach Christ where he's not really there. And I want to say, amen, you, you are exactly right. But the grace of God is there. God is revealing his, his answer to whatever that human predicament is. Some, some aspect of human fallenness is on display and God is somehow revealing his gracious nature, and that comes to fulfillment in Christ. So I'm not trying to take out my decoder ring and make mm-hmm. Jesus, uh, you know, by some mystic code, appear in every Old Testament passage. And you have, you have decades of experience preaching and teaching others how to preach. And as you look at conservative evangelicalism, kind of our neck of the woods, what would you say is the greater danger? Is it that we would uh, fall too far on the side of seeing Christ under every rock, so to speak, or is it that we we don't make the connection to Christ sufficiently when we preach the Old Testament? Honestly, I think the greater danger is the latter one. That that more often I I hear people um, just saying, "Be a better person." You know, the, the the message of this week is that you should improve your performance, or you should, you should improve your competence. You should know more or do better. And the problem with that is it actually just serves the human instinct. People think that they are the answer to their problem with God. And if all I do in the sermon this week and the next week and the next week and the next week, until we get to that evangelistic sermon that's preached once a quarter, you know, if if all we're doing is we're saying, you know, you just should know more than you know this week, or you should just do better than you did last week. If all my, if all I am regularly doing is teaching people to improve their competence or improve their performance, inevitably they perceive themselves as their own redeemer, and that that becomes the problem. I'll I'll do better so the ogre in the sky will be nice to me, or I'll do better so that I can compare to other people either in my doctrine or my performance, and that will make me acceptable to God. Now nobody would answer it that way in the exam. But when we, when we constantly are saying nothing but do better or no more, what can people believe but that what makes them acceptable to God this week is they've done better or they know more than the people down the street? The gospel message, which is unfolding through all the scriptures, is God must make a way. You do not make your own way. God must make a way. And being true to the scriptures is saying... If you do not make your own way out of your human predicament, if God has to make the way out, how does he ultimately do that? You know, I think grace is on display virtually everywhere. Just, you know, God is giving food to hungry people. If he's giving rest to weary people, if he's giving victory to a few people, what is God showing us about himself? He's the rescuer. So I think a lot of us, as we read the New Testament, uh, one related issue is we see Jesus, we see some of the other New Testament writers quoting or citing or alluding to the Old Testament, and sometimes they do it in ways that are a little bit confusing, or they seem they seem to go beyond maybe the original context of the Old Testament passage, or 
uh, apply uh, certain Old Testament statements to other figures where that, that wouldn't be obvious if you were just reading the Old Testament. What should we make of their examples, and in what ways can we learn from them and do similar, and in what ways do we need to be a little bit more cautious, perhaps? Yeah, they are they are great questions, and I, I was just lecturing on a seminary a couple of weeks ago, and I said, I, I imagine that one out of every three New Testament or Old Testament PhD dissertation these days is the use of the Old Testament in the New. What is the proper use of the Old Testament in the New? And and here's the basic issue we're struggling with. We, we Westerners tend to read the Bible in what I think of as a very kind of propositional linear way. A leads to B leads to C leads to D. And, and we just say, just just logically tell me what that means. And and this is a very good thing to do. I mean, we take out our historical grammatical tools and we say, just tell me logically what that means. But here's the difference. Um, many of the Hebrew writers and readers were not simply looking for propositions, tell me what that sentence means. They were looking for patterns. What is the pattern by which God is relating to his people? And so they would recognize over and over again, God is rescuing people from slavery in the Old Testament. So that when Matthew tells us, you know, uh, that, that Jesus' family came out of Egypt somewhere, as Hosea said, he quotes Hosea, out of Egypt have I called my son. We go back to Hosea and we say, wait a second, Hosea isn't referring to the Messiah coming out of Egypt there. Well, what is Hosea referring to? He, as happened over and over again in the Old Testament, is being reminded that just as Moses said to Pharaoh once upon a time, let my son go, when God was referring to to Israel, he said, let my son go. And Israel came up out of Egypt as part of the deliverance of the covenant people. And that deliverance out of Egypt happens over and over again in the Old Testament. So when Matthew looks at an example in Jesus' life and says, you know what, Jesus came out of Egypt again to rescue his people. Um, Matthew isn't saying that's exactly what Hosea meant. Matthew is saying, there's the pattern again. There's the pattern again. And we are trying to remind ourselves, not just allegorically, that's not the purpose, but what is the pattern that God might be revealing. Now, there's lots of discussion about these this these days, and and I must tell you, Matt. No, honestly, I think this is this is not the place I normally encourage people to go to try to discern Christ in the Old Testament. I mean, clearly there are these uh, literary and typological references that, that get us into a lot of debate, and uh, I often find that that people who are trying to get into Christ-centered preaching, they just get mired down in the debate of, of some mm. typology or some, uh, you know, is this allegorical or is this literary and what's legitimate? And I want to say, okay, lots of good stuff here, but, but really even the best scholars are kind of debating the fences of this fertile field of exegesis right now. And we're not exactly sure where all the fences are because we're not always good Hebrew readers. But here's what you can always do. You can look at any text, old or new, and say, what does that text tell me about the nature of God? It's going to be telling me God is in some way providing for people who can't provide for themselves. And what is this text telling me about humanity, about me? It's telling me I'm not my own answer. I'm not my deliverer. 
And if we will just put on what I call those gospel glasses, just ask any text those two questions. What is this telling me about the nature of God who provides redemption? What is this telling me about the nature of humanity that requires redemption? That, that as I ask, what does it say about God? What does it say about me? That's not imposing the New Testament on the old. It's not making Jesus magically appear. It's saying there's a gap between my humanity and God's provision, and God has to bridge the gap. Somehow that, that message is appearing, and Christ is the culmination of that message. Another area where I think a lot of us struggle and um, don't always know how to, how to deal with some of these texts is when it comes to prophecy, and it kind of relates to this. How, how have you seen conservative Christians misunderstand Old Testament prophecy when it comes to Christ? Actually, I don't think that's as hard a question. Uh, now, I honestly will see people interpreting the prophets without Jesus at times. You know, comfort, comfort ye my people— quoting Isaiah, and they give me a long sermon on the comfort that God provides his people and forget that we're in a messianic passage. <laughs> so so I mm. think if it's clear prophecy, then often the problem is not having a proper referent for the prophecy. You know, is this a first coming or a second coming? Um, is Or is Christ mentioned, you know, at all as we are doing the, the proper interpretation? So uh, if it's a prophecy, I think here the commentators really will help you. I would I would just you know use a good use a good study Bible or go to a good commentary, and I think you'll get the prophecies right. Now, granted, there there are discussions about disputed messianic psalms. Is Psalm one really a messianic psalm or not? But most people agree Psalm 16 is. <laughs> not much discussion there, or Psalm 22. Not much discussion there. So um, I will grant you there are places that, that will have uh, our discussions and our debates. But for most preachers, uh, day in and day out, uh, if it's a clear messianic prophecy, uh, just get Jesus in there. That, that's what's being said. And you mentioned the Psalms. How might a sensitivity to literary genre help inform how we go about preaching Christ in the whole Old Testament? Well, a great question. So uh, I think you're aware that the way I sometimes help people or try to help people is to say certain passages of the Old Testament are clearly predictive of the work of Christ. And so if you're in the prophecies or you're in a prophetic portion of the Pentateuch, you know, whether you're talking about Genesis 3.15, you know, the first gospel, the first prophecy of Christ, or Deuteronomy 18, the greater Moses to come, or you're in a historical passage where there is a clear prophecy. I mean, the, the prophecies bridge the genres of the Old Testament. Um, so where there's prophecy, interpret it prophetically. But often what's happening in the Old Testament, whether you're in a history or wisdom literature, is we're being prepared. And I, I think I can ask people, how are we being prepared to understand what God would have to do in Christ? And often in the histories, there are both bridges and dead ends. There are things that are bridging our understanding, um, whether it's uh, the Passover or the Exodus. We're being told ultimately that God can release his people from slavery, that he can have his wrath pass over by the shed blood of the innocent. We're being prepared. And certain things are dead ends. You know, the human kings are not the answer. The human prophets are not the answer. We need a better law keeper. We need a, a, a better sacrifice. So uh, learning to read the dead ends as well as the bridges, 
are part of our preparation. And uh, I, I think reading the scriptures with an understanding that whether I'm in prophecies or histories or even wisdom literature, I'm being made to understand that God is somehow showing me he is the way out. And I think the the key to all of this is what I is what I talk about. How is the passage reflecting God's redemptive nature? If I'm in wisdom literature, what am I learning? I'm learning that God's wisdom is the way that I make it through life. That that the best answer is not a human solution; it's a divine solution. And if I will ask God, He will grant liberally and without reproach what I need. So I'm not looking for. Uh, as it were, a, a promise in a proverb. You know, I'm not misinterpreting the literature, but I'm still saying in that proverb, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. That, that, that's, that's not an absolute promise. Sometimes good parents have bad kids, and uh, I don't interpret a proverb as a promise, but what do I interpret a proverb as? As a proverb. Wise words given from God, things that tend to be true, and so wise people lay them to heart. And what that means is this wisdom is not just from my own mind and heart and experience. God has given me this wisdom, and I'm learning to trust him. Why do I need to trust him? Because he's ultimately telling me that the end of my wisdom is the one who became for me wisdom from God, my holiness, my righteousness, my redemption, as Paul would say. And uh, so wisdom literature is teaching me also of the work of God in my behalf. What would you say to someone who, um, whether or not they'd say this explicitly or not, someone who is a little bit suspicious of the Old Testament and its value for Christians today, who maybe just wonders, like, how relevant is this? They've maybe tried to read it before, and they've found it less nourishing, less encouraging, uh, less clearly related to the gospel than the New Testament. If you were to sit across from someone like that, what would they be losing if they were to push aside the Old Testament and kind of not spend any time there? What I think they would lose is the message of how unrelenting is the love of God for his people that despite multiple failures, difficulties, uh, rebellions, that God is maintaining his love for his people and preparing for them a salvation that they could not prepare for themselves. If all I have is, you know, a bunch of (laughs) moral commands and uh, Aesop's fables, and at the end of it all, there's a surprise Jesus and I'm really not understanding how the Old Testament is put together. It's put together to reveal to me how God is making a path for a Redeemer in order for his people to go all along that path to Christ, appreciating how, as I said, unrelenting, constant, persevering has God been in his love for his people. And that I need that. So I don't just kind of go, oh, In the Old Testament, that was the mean God with a bunch of rules. And in the New Testament, suddenly Jesus surprises everybody as being the nice God without rules. Well, neither image is correct. Instead, what I meant to learn is God was showing me all along my need of the Savior. And in doing so, he was preparing my heart as well as the hearts of the nations for seeing why Christ had to come and what he would do. What practical advice would you give to someone who who is eager to do this, eager to read the Old Testament 
with a Christ-centered perspective, uh, seeing how it all does culminate in Christ and the gospel. Uh, but how would you counsel them to avoid jumping to Christ too quickly? What practical advice would you offer that person? I don't want to oversimplify it, but because I teach this in enough places, Matt, I, I sometimes have to say, listen, if, if you really want to read deeply, there there are lots of places you can go to uh, Graham Goldsworthy, Sidney Grudanis, Tim Keller, Edmund Clowney, uh, Warren Gage. You know, there are great people you can read to think deeply of all the connections. But if you're just saying, can you just help me today with this one passage, then I'll say, put on your gospel glasses. All right. One lens is asking this question. What does this tell me about the nature of God? And the other lens is, what does this tell, tell me about the nature of humanity, of me? If we'll just put on those glasses, any passage of the Old or New Testament, we're going to start thinking redemptively. And that's my goal. To, if you will, I'm, There can be a lot more complicated arguments and a lot more complicated understanding. But if, if we'll just put on our gospel glasses, what we'll see is God providing for people who cannot provide for themselves. And that is making me understand why I need Christ, my Redeemer. Yeah, when you put it that way, it makes me think that sometimes we we make this more complicated than it actually needs to be. And more controversial. <laughs> and, and I'm hmm. trying to, to actually say we, we don't have to get into war with each other or blame one another for some sort of allegorical definition that nobody's actually trying to defend. I, I at times hmm. have had people say, you know, I just don't believe what you teach about Jesus being in every verse of the Old Testament. And I'm saying, great, because I don't teach that. <laughs> and I don't know any wise scholar who actually does. So then last question, you kind of mentioned that if you just take those two lenses, those two questions to any passage and ask those, that that will get us started on this road. But what would be a, a first Old Testament passage that you would recommend somebody who maybe hasn't ever studied the Old Testament this way, has always felt confused? What, what one passage would you point them to first? Well, I would go to Genesis 3.15, you know, because I would say that becomes a theme verse of the rest of the Bible. When you understand that God is saying there's going to be somebody coming from this woman and that person who comes is going to crush the influence of Satan, then you're, you're on the right story path, as it were. But if you need more than that, I mean, something like Genesis 15, you know, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness to say, what is God teaching me there? Or, you know, if, if that's doctrinal, but you could just look at Hosea chapter two. What is, what is God teaching when he says to Hosea, take Gomer to be your wife and the prostitute becomes the wife of a prophet. And, and then God says, even though she went again after other men, Hosea, take her back because such is the love of God for Israel. What am I learning? Well, there's not a message of Christ dying on the cross for my sin there in Hosea, but what am I learning? Such is the love of God for his people. Even when we have been wrong, God continues to provide covenant love for his people. If we will trust in him, he is providing the way out of our human predicament, which is salvation by faith, in the God who provides what we cannot provide for ourselves. And that is throughout the Bible. Brian, thank you so much for spending some time today talking with us about this, this fascinating, important topic and for uh, offering some very practical, I think, advice for reading the Bible better. You're welcome, Matt. My privilege. 
That was Brian Chappell explaining how to read the Old Testament through a Christ-centered lens. For more, be sure to check out the ESV Gospel Transformation Study Bible, on which Dr. Chappell served as general editor, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel through publishing gospel-centered, Bible-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.